Welcome to the Traveling Image Makers Podcast, your source of inspiration about travel photography. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the ride as we bring you on a tour around the world with our guests. So hello everyone. This is episode 84 of the Traveling Image Makers podcast with your host, Ugo Che. Our guest today, Robert Scott Kelly, is a writer, podcaster, photographer and travel guidebook author. He's just passed his 20th year living abroad and has covered places as diverse as China, Malaysia and Alaska, and topics as wide-ranging as traditional Chinese temple architecture, trekking in the Himalayas, surfing Hainan Island, burning in Taiwan, coffee, graving, and the best place to see the sunset. So welcome, Robert. And first of all, I'm very curious, what is the best place to see the sunset? <laughs> okay, well, th thank you so much for having me on. Um, that actually was specific to one place, uh, but no, it was during during the um, I guess the turn of the you know 1999 to, you know to the uh, turn of the millennium, uh, BBC had listed this sort of hundred places you know to see the best sunrise, and you know coincidentally one of them was actually in Taiwan on on the uh, west on the east coast, and so it's you know it's south of Taichung City, uh, it's just this long beautiful stretch of beach pretty much looking right out onto the Pacific. Uh, and it really was, I mean, one of the best places to see it because you had nothing in front of you, just, you know, clear, you know, clear ocean. Mm. Um, yeah, so just a you know, gorgeous, gorgeous spot. You could just, nobody, almost nobody, especially at that time, uh, 15, 17 years ago, almost nobody would use the beach. So you had like 10 kilometers basically to yourself just to build a bonfire and watch the, uh, watch the new millennium come in. Cool. Maybe I'll have to visit someday. But yeah, going back to to your to your to your bio. When we discussed this uh, this interview a few days ago, uh, you told me that uh, yeah, okay, you your your bio lists you as a photographer, but actually your main interest, your main occupation is being a, a writer, a travel writer, and a guidebook author. So. Uh, even the, even if this podcast is mostly about travel photography, I'm very much interested about the topic of travel writing because I personally think that it uh, it fits so well together with with photography. And we we had discussed the topic in the past. Uh, I think we had uh, uh, Jens Lennonson in episode 21 and Laurie Allen in episode 37. Uh, what are we discussing uh, travel writing? So, um, very much want to know about your experience, your uh, your life story as a travel writer or storyteller. Uh, how did it get started, for instance? Okay. Okay. Um, I mean, I've been writing since my you know sort of teenage years, late teens, when I, you know, f uh, writing especially fiction back then when I first discovered Russian novelists. That was kind of the first inspiration for uh, you know 19th century Russian novelists was, was sort of my first inspiration for, tr for uh, writing. And then when I started, you know, I, I traveled a lot from the time I was 18, 19. I was going to Southeast Asia. I think that back in the, in the 80s when I went there, um, almost nobody, I was 19, I was one of the first, you know, uh, very young, you know, travelers to go to the region. There was most people would go to Europe first, and they'd go to North America, um, you know, afterwards, and and you know, and then they might travel off to Southeast Asia. So, you know, I've been traveling to a lot of exotic uh, places, um, you know, kind of off the beaten track, and it was always part of my, you know, sort of lifestyle. Uh, 
you know, my parents were travelers. Uh, my brother and sister were born abroad. Uh, born abroad. Um, so, you know, in the family, we, we you know, we like to travel. We, we like to get out and see new things. Um, and then basically I was, you know, trying to be, a, uh, you know, work as a fiction writer and, you know, that wasn't going too well. Um, and so I decided to go abroad and teach, um, you know, and, and I chose Taiwan <clears throat> for various reasons. Um, it had been in my mind for a long time because I'd met, uh, when I was first traveling in Southeast Asia, I met a German traveler uh, when I was stuck at, at the airport in Hong Kong for about 12 hours. Uh, and he told, he told me he was actually living in Taiwan and he was, you know, he was actually teaching English even, even though he was, uh, you know, German. Um, and he was on this, what they call like, what, what he, was, he was calling a Kung Fu scholarship. Mm-hmm. scholarship. Um, apparently back then you could literally get a visa if you're studying martial arts, which is, you know, pretty crazy. <laughs> so it, it just sort of stuck in my mind. Um, and Taiwan had been a place when I was growing up, um, you know, it, I don't had these old maps, you know, my, my father had these old maps and it was ca- called Formosa on the maps. And it's just this massive island, you know, off the coast of China um, that had always sort of intrigued me, you know, the name had intrigued me. And, and so when, when all these things, you know, these events sort of happening, like, you know, I, I, I had to get away from Canada uh, where I'm from, because uh, you know it was a huge recession um, back then. It was you know for Canada it was as bad as you know 2008 was for most of the world. Um, just some you know like youth unemployment was 30 uh, percent. Just you know was, the, the country was just it seemed like it was in ruins, and I had to get out. Uh, I saw no future for me as a writer, no future for me at all. And so I thought, okay, I'm, I'm going to go to Asia. I'm going to you know teach at least. Uh, you know, I can make a living and I can explore, uh, you know, explore new cultures and, and write, you know, I, I have time to write. And so um, I landed in Taiwan and I was there for a long time. And then I, <clears throat> I eventually transitioned, you know, into working for publishers and working for magazines there. And one day, um, my wife at the time was who was Taiwanese. She was working and somebody in the office came in, uh, an Australian and said, Oh, does anybody know anybody who writes? Um, you know, I, I was a former editor for Lonely Planet. And, um, you know, we, we're, we're looking for somebody to take over the Taiwan Guide. So, you know, my wife said, well, my husband is a writer. <laughs> um, and they're like, great, well, let's, let's meet him and let's, you know, and, and that's essentially what happened. Um, you know, I was introduced to this editor and, you know, she introduced me to the company and said it was, it was just, you know, very sort of, uh, you know, you know, good sort of, you know, commingling of different uh, needs that they had. You know, they wanted to get rid of the old writer. They wanted a fresh voice. Um, you know, I was looking basically to move into freelancing more, you know. And so I did their test. Um, you know, I found a place that wasn't covered in the current Taiwan guide. Spent a few days there, you know, researching it, um, you know, food, accommodation, culture, history, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then submitted it and got the job. And that was uh, basically the beginning. Just, you know, it was, a, it was a, basically what most people probably would tell you. Like, you prepare by, you know, by doing things. You prepare by writing, by working where you can at the time uh, until some kind of opportunity comes along. Um, you know, and so if you're prepared, you can take advantage of that, you know. Um, and then that's essentially what happened. Uh, how do you become a, a great travel writer? I mean, uh, what does... Uh uh, companies like Lonely Planet, what what they are looking for in a writer? Do you need it to be very much experienced about the about the place? How much time do you have to to spend before you can write about it? Uh, I, I don't know how that works in, in practice. Can you maybe explain? Um, for every every editor would have different different sort of needs or different uh, different you know priorities that they have. Uh, for some places, of course, 
you know, if you're doing China, if you're doing doing Taiwan, if you're doing Japan, uh, places like that, language would be a huge issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, they'd, so they'd want you to know, you know, to know the language so that you can actually get, you know, practical information and you can explain to people who don't know the language how the buses work and how the trains work and, um, you know, and, and you know, basically where to go, you know, to do to do things to eat. Um, that's, I mean, it's not as important anymore because of, you know, smartphones, essentially. I mean, people can, you know, you can, you can use, um, you know, Google Translate, uh, you know, to, to communicate with people. You can use uh, optical readers, you know, to read a map now when you go to China, you know, or to read a bus schedule. So it, some of these things are not, these skills are not as uh, as dire, you know, uh, or, you know, or as relevant um, as they used to be. But certainly, like, you know, language is important. Um, and I think really what they what they wanted was a sense that you know you would just work hard. You know, I mean, a lot of being, being especially being a guidebook writer, is just being tenacious. Um, you know, you you know you've gone somewhere and it's like oh you know maybe you can't get the information you need because the train station's uh, closed. You know, and you you just wait you know to the next day or you know you, you the map is not doesn't look very accurate so you just walk around for hours and hours and hours you know, like improving improving the map you know um and so a lot of it yeah it's just simply being you know uh working hard working you know like long long hours i mean you're you know when you're on the road travel writing uh for a guidebook you're, you're working 14 16 hours a day i mean basically from the time you wake up um you know because you're usually having breakfast somewhere that you're going to cover you know so everything you're doing is you know is is basically work um and so yeah so so they want people who have you know that sort of stamina um and people who i guess you know are conscientious uh people who you know basically want to make sure that okay even if you're on your last day in a in a, in a town and you're like oh no i've just discovered this whole neighborhood that looks really interesting um you know, you want to be. They want to make sure you're the type of person who actually would stay. Mm-hmm. You know, and uh, and you know, cover that as opposed to just saying, well, you know, maybe next time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, so I mean, basically, you know, perseverance, you know, conscientiousness, um, and just having a sense of what, uh, you know, being a traveler yourself, so that you know what are the sort of things that you, you know, that other people would want to know. Um, you know, so certain, you know, like Lonely Planet is always good for certain details, like uh, if a place, if a road didn't have, um, you know, street, uh, you know, names, or not street, uh, didn't have names, for example, or didn't have addresses, uh, that you would be aware of that and you would tell people, yeah. you know, how to find something instead of just saying, yeah, it's on this street and, you know, and, and good luck finding it, uh, which is something you find much more like in, in blogs and, you know, in social media kind of posts where they just, you know, oftentimes yeah. won't, uh, won't give you that. Yeah, I see you speaking of blogs and social media. It looks to me like there's a proliferation of travel blogs nowadays, maybe because people think they can make some money uh, with that and help them pay for the travels or maybe be invited to, to media trips and so on. But it's it's like a, it's a bit of a mixed bag. I mean, some some are great, but most of them are, my, at least to my eyes, are not that great. Uh, what do you think is the is the value of uh, of social media and travel blogs in this respect? Are they going to someday make so that guidebooks like Lonely Planet and so on are not needed anymore? Well, I think because of what we were just talking about a few minutes ago. Um, different sort of apps you know that that can translate and do things i think in a lot of cases they're not for the average traveler they're not really so necessary anymore um i mean i've been doing a lot of traveling 
you know, in Southeast Asia, because I, I live in Malaysia now, uh, and I do mostly it's like just standard trips because I have, I have a two-year-old, you know, boy. So, you know, we're not going on any on any huge adventures, uh, and it's just it's just mind blowing to me how easy it is. I mean, that you literally like you can be on the plane, you know, f- f- uh, doing your research, or you know, you, you arrive at the airport and you're like, oh yeah, is there an ATM in this uh, in this airport? I better check, and you just go you go on, take out your phone, and you're like, oh yeah, okay, it's, as you exit the airport to the right are the ATMs. Um, so a lot of, and, and that's the sort of things that, that people would rely on guidebooks in the past for that kind of comfort. So they would know how to, tr- how to change money, you know, or how, you know, how to, you know, were there ATMs available, uh, how to get phone cards, you know, or how to make phone, you know, before, before phone, cell phones, like how to make phone calls uh, and all that kind of stuff. And that's, you know, where uh, a lot of the information now is just you know, it's kind of ubiquitous. Um, that kind of stuff that you would need for, like I said, for your comfort, is things that are readily available online. Um, so I think, you know, guidebooks are more. For me, they're some more valuable, more in terms of like the the sort of summarization of, of a country, like giving you cultural information. You know, giving you you know information about what kind of food, what kind of experiences are, are generally there. Um, you know, these sort of cultural tips um, and and just. I guess helping you refine your search a bit so that, okay, these are the places, the restaurants, the hotels that and sites that we've sort of determined are, are interesting. Um, and if you're finding them elsewhere, great, you know, you, you'll probably want to visit them. Um, the problem I have with, with most blogs um, is, is, as you said, it, and, and most social media, is that you would think that, you know, with, there's an explosion of information, um, there's an explosion of new sites, you know, new countries that have opened up. But instead of this information, you know, coming, you know, coming to us, we're getting just more concentration of what we already know. Mm-hmm. So, if you, so if you look at, at, you know, Instagram, for example, I mean, like the most uh, photographed places and the most popular places on Instagram are New York, you know, France, like Paris, you know, and, and Rome. I mean, essentially the same places that have been popular, you know, for 60 years, right? So you can find, you know, like lots of new places, but they're not there, you know, when you, when you go to these things, they're not being pushed into, you know, in, you know, in front of your face. Um, instead, what you're getting is, you know, the same old sites, you know, that everybody knows, and you're getting the same interpretation of these sites. And that's what, what kind of really bothers me um, about, you know, sort of the social media, you know, travel, you know, travel information and social media is that it's concentrating a few interpretations of everything as opposed to, uh, you know, giving you a proliferation of, you know, of what this site could be. Um, so it's essentially, to me, it's it's kind of replaced, you know, the tourism brochure of the past, you know, where you got kind of a a, sum, a glossy summary of, of a place. Um, sometimes your travel agent might have photographs that he had, or she had taken, you know, to give you a little bit more. But but, but that's pretty much all what you're getting, unless you're really digging in deeper, um, you know, in, into you know, said into you know Google, um, you know, or or even Instagram, sometime to find new places. But you know, the the sort of the you know the the narratives that are being you know created around sites, everybody says the same thing. And even when they're wrong, and this drives me crazy, I've written, you know, to bloggers and to people on Twitter and saying like, oh, actually, you know, that there was one place in, uh, in China in the, in the Gobi Desert <clears throat> in Duanhuang, the sun and moon, um, uh, it's like an oasis. <clears throat> it's this, you know, little lake that's shaped like a crescent moon. It looks beautiful in photographs, right? I mean, people just think, wow, this is, this is just like somewhere I need to go to. It's like this, it's remote. It's, you know, it, it's sort of idyllic. Like you're out in the desert with this, you know, beautiful oasis, you know, all the sort of, you know, tides of history are flowing through this place. 
but it's not like that at all. <laughs> you know, when you go, it's I mean, it's surrounded for one thing by a by a cement boardwalk. Um, if you if you tilted the camera, you know, just a little bit to the left, you would see groups, you know, of, of people in pink in pink, um, you know, sort of a not rain suits like you know boots. Walking through the desert, you'd see like dune buggies, you know, going through the desert. You'd see people on these, you know, cheesy tourist camel rides. I mean, that's what it is. It's a, it's a massive tourist site. Um, and, I've, you know, and I've written to a few people and said, you know, um, really, like you shouldn't be promoting this as some kind of out of the way oasis, right? It's essentially it's a tourist site. And, and you can actually go to any Chinese website or you can go to Lonely Planet. And you can see that, that, you know, that that's how it's described, right? And the response is always just like nothing. And then a few months later, I'll see the same post on the same blog or the same, you know, Twitter feed saying the exact same thing, yeah. you know. And, and it's like, you know, it really annoys me because this is going, you know, especially if the person is popular, you know, other bloggers, other, you know, like, you know, uh, you know people on Twitter are going to take that message and they're going to just mindlessly repeat it. And we have a situation where, you know, essentially there's no sort of gatekeeper, you know, on, on a lot of these things telling you that. Uh, or at least like filtering out kind of the you know the inaccuracies and and the garbage, um, and and just sort of saying well actually no you know like it's it's a you know kind of interesting place but this is actually what it's like right, um, and it, it's sort of the same with with reviews. Um, I was actually I was in Indonesia last week, and I literally encountered the the craziest, most abusive guest house owner you know of my you know mm-hmm. entire you know. You know, life and, and especially my career. And, I, and, I, and I've looked at I've looked at thousands of you know guest houses, hotels over the last fifteen years. He was kind of like a like you know Basil Fawlty in um, you know in in, in uh, Fawlty Towers, Fawlty right? Towers. You know the old yeah. you know um, just you know thin skin, brittle, aggressive, you know like angry, um, and just super defensive. And, and we just end up having this big blowout at the at, at the end because uh, there was you know we we're the guest house was in the fields, you know in the rice fields, and the, you know, the local farmers just set up a, a huge fire, you know, about 80 meters from, you know, the guest house uh, in these dry fields where the sugar cane had just been harvested. And there's just, you know, probably like, like 50, 100 square meters of, of flames, you know, reaching three meters in the air, just flooding like, you know, our guest house with, you know, with thick smoke. And of course, just, just the danger of having this uh, fire so close, right? And so, you know, I go to the guy and explain, like, this is not, you know, acceptable. Like, you know, you need to, you know, do this. And he just refused to, uh, you know, attempt to make any concessions, right? And he just started yelling at me that, you know, um, you know, the, the, I'm Indonesia, I have to put up with these things. And, you know, and, and I'm a bad, I'm a bad sort of like, you know, foreigner for coming here and, you know, demanding Western standards and all this sort of nonsense, right? He just, you know, he just kept going through this laundry list of, of excuses, right? Mm. You know, first of all, first of all, that, oh, it's totally safe. And I'm like, oh, come on, two years ago, Indonesia was all in flames, you know, uh, you know, with, with, because of fires that went out of control. I mean, everybody knows this, right? I mean, it was, you know, two years ago, Indonesia was a disaster. Um, and especially living in Malaysia, you know, I, I knew that, you know, and then he's like, oh, you know, like, you know, you can't, you can't escape dangers, you know? Um, and I'm like, well, you know, I, I try to mitigate the dangers that I put myself in and putting myself 80 meters from a, unt- you know, controlled fire is not, <laughs> not, one, not one of the things that I really like ca- casually do, especially when I have a young, you know, like a child with me. Right. So anyways, so, you know, he's just, I mean, absolutely crazy, you know, like, uh, you know, a person, but, you know, when you go on to TripAdvisor, he has 400 good reviews and 12 mm-hmm. Very negative reviews, and the negative reviews are, are, you know, in in line with what happened to me. You know that basically, if you 
you know, if he doesn't like you for whatever reason or if you complain about something he thinks is not uh, justifiable for whatever reason, he will just, you know, launch, you know, into an attack on you. And, and, um, and he's, you know, he's been very, I mean, some of the people like from Singapore and from India have said he just, you know, was very racist towards them, um, you know, and, uh, you know, it's just, just a very nasty person. But with 400 good reviews, none of these bad reviews matter. Yeah, yeah. You know? um, um, my, my personal... You know, my personal take on that, and I'm I'm traveling to Thailand in a, in a couple of months, actually, and I've uh, I've got a the Lonely Planet guide to Thailand, which nowadays I I don't use it anymore for finding hotels and uh, and restaurants. Mm-hmm. I I rely on on TripAdvisor, I yep. rely on online reviews, TripAdvisor or Booking.com and so on, and uh, uh, I I my strategy for dealing with reviews is starting by reading the terrible reviews the one star reviews and seeing right. if the if there is something because if 10 people say that the guy there was uh, had this specific attitude which to me is uh mm, i would find uncomf- uncomfortable with i would mm-hmm. look at the positive reviews with a skeptical eye whereas if the 10 negative reviews were complaining about i don't know the quality of the wi-fi in the rooms as many people do even if they're (laughs) traveling in the middle of nowhere they want to have high bandwidth in their hotel room i would say okay whatever i would go in the lobby if i need wi-fi i'm fine i don't care so i try to uh to to use those reviews not, not just consider the average but consider the extremes why do why do people think it's really bad and why do people think it's really good and try to, to understand if it's good or bad for me? So right, that's, right. That, that's, that's a bit of my approach. I still use guys like, Long, like Lonely Planet to tell me about the uh, places I should visit or things like uh, opening hours for museums or archaeological sites, those yeah, kind yeah, of uh, yeah. valuable information. But uh, for Thailand, I'm, I'm looking, I'm trying to find uh, more than a guidebook uh, more of a travels, travelers' uh, stories collection. So somebody writing about Thailand specifically or any other country I would want to go to that would give me a bit more, um, less than a catalog of information, more of a traveler's perspective, less mm-hmm. than a tourist's, more of a traveler's perspective, so so to speak. Right. So, so first of all, if you have anything to suggest about Thailand, <laughs> that would be appreciated. Uh, but, uh, but in general, what, what do you... Uh, what's your what's your take on this? What what do you think uh, makes each of those type of travel books or guides uh, valuable? First of all, sorry for Thailand. I, I don't have any uh, recommendations, unfortunately. <laughs> I don't. I don't. Thailand's one of the. I, I visited Thailand like thirty years ago when I was first traveling, and I haven't. I don't really go back much. It's not, it's not really a place I, I like that much. Mm-hmm. Um, so unfortunately, I can't. I can't really say too much about that. Um, in terms of like yeah the difference between the value of it um, as you said I mean I'm even me I mean I, I write guidebooks but I I don't u- usually use them that much uh, for recommendations for like I said for food for uh, <clears throat> excuse me for accommodation um, unless I really know the writer uh, you know has something especially for food has something valuable you know to say and some of them do some of them you know really know uh, a lot about food culture in the place that they're they're writing about so it, it, one of the things with guidebooks is that you know, they're 
some of them are, are fantastic. Um, some of them are, are just okay. And of course, it, it would depend on you know the editor, what kind of team they put together. So um, unfortunately, that's one of the things you know things like you kind of learn afterwards. You know, <laughs> it's like oh, the rough guide was for you know for, you know this country was way better than the Lonely Planet, or you know, or the Brat was way better. So this is something that. Um, you know, I think actually online reviews can kind of help. So I would always suggest that people, you know, look, look at the reviews about books as well, um, because you know there are, there's there's Rough Guy, there's Fordors, there's Brat, I mean, there's Lonely Planet, um, and you know, and, and there are different um, focuses that these books have, right? Um, and and so in terms of the value, um, basically for a guidebook, I mean, first of all, it has to be accurate, you know, um, and this is not really obvious like what that means and you know what I, I guess about eight seven or eight years ago i had to train a group of writers in china uh, as, a, as, a, as a publisher that works with lonely planet to produce guidebooks just for the local market so you know i was invited there to essentially train these you know these chinese authors uh, how to be guidebook writers um, and you know and, and people just have a lot of you know sort of naturally sloppy habits you know about um, you know getting information you know, and and so they don't they don't check they don't double check you know dates and times you know um, you know they'll just if they, if they can't get to a museum um, the hotel they're at what are the hours and then they don't double check that you know by going to the, for example just even just going to the front gate of the museum and checking you know the checking the times there right or things like that or asking other people so um, maps for example you know they they could be very people can be very very sloppy especially younger uh, writers because they're so used to Google Maps um, you know they can be very very you know inaccurate uh, where they pinpoint things you know so I guess the first value of a guidebook is that yeah somebody who worked on it you know said it was very conscientious and and made sure that the information was accurate um, made sure that also that you know they they know the country in different seasons because sometimes, you know, the hours can be very different. Sometimes, you know, things can be closed. Sometimes there are, you know, there are seasonal holidays, um, you know, that, uh, you know, for example, like at Harbin, there's like the snow festival, you know, the ice festival in wintertime. Well, I've never been there for winter, you know, um, they don't send me there in wintertime because the, then I can't see the rest of the province, you know. So you have to you know, make sure that you make a special effort, you know, to find people who've been there, um, you know, and to grill, grill them, you know, on, on what it's like and what the prices are and call the tourism agencies and all that kind of stuff. Um, so, yeah, so, I mean, the guidebook, I think, you know, it's, it's that accurate information uh, that gives you like, you know, that kind of comfort that, you know, you're going to a place, you know, generally what's, what's available to see and, and do, and you can, and you can, you know, form itineraries, you know, around that, which is really important. I mean, if you're going for a week, you know, you want to make sure that uh, you can, you know, it's plausible to see, you know, they, they, these 10 things that you want to see. Um, and, you know, and, and if you just read, you know, social media posts, for example, you know, it might be a little more difficult unless somebody specifically, um, you know, done that. Uh, people make a lot of lists on social media, but a list is not the same as saying, you know, these are the 10 things you can see in three days. You know, usually it's not like that. It's usually like these are just the 10 things to see in a place. And then, you know, there's no follow up in terms of how much time each one takes. Right. So, um, so yeah, so a guidebook basically helps you to form itineraries. It helps to, you know, make you feel confident about, uh, you know, what there is to see and that, you know, you're going to see the best places. Uh, books that you're talking about, uh, travel books, like stories, um, they basically, I mean, one, they can simply just inspire you, you know, and then they can help you to kind of make a bit of a pilgrim's itinerary, 
you know, you, you found the places that, for example, this writer, you know, saw uh, as he's traveling across China or as he's traveling across Japan. And you can, you know, you can make a similar list. Uh, to, you know, to see these places, and of course, when you visit, you know, you're, you know, you're sort of, you feel a sort of tingle because it's like, ah, this is, you know, uh, this place that you've read lots about, and and you know, you have this all these associations with it. So inspiration is, you know, is a big thing, um, but it can also sort of tell you, I guess, a bit about how you know the, how the country is in terms of the people. In a way, for example, like I'm working on a story now about uh, my marriage in, in Malaysia. Um, and and the birth of our son, you know, because I basically have you know, been married here, and you know we've had a child, and I've never done. Well, I was I was married once in Taiwan, um, but I mean I've never had a child anywhere else. I've never had one in my own home, home country. I've never had one. So you know, just these sort of experiences uh, show you a lot about a country, you know. So the way the hospitals work, you know, the way the doctors work, um, and so but you know by telling the story, I'm hoping that people can kind of get a sense of how. You know these these different um, I guess the, the different cultures in Malaysia interact with foreigners at these sort of very uh, you know important milestones in your life, right? You know we had to get married. Um, you know our marriage is basically in a, in a um, I guess what would you call it? like kind of a civic building, right? Which is essentially uh, so it's you know it's it's run by by, by Malays, by you know by Muslim Malays. Um, so the whole thing was you know it was, it was officiated by you know by a Muslim man, like he was the justice of the peace, um, you know, and just the whole experience was you know was that sort of part of the culture. Uh, when we went, to, we had to go to register our marriage, uh, and that was quite revealing because um, my wife didn't actually have to give any c- consent. <laughs> You know, to the, to the marriage, like I just, I, I just had to, yeah, I just had to sign. You know, like yeah, she she gives her consent. Um, you know, it's like wow, that's kind of revealing. Um, but also just like you know, as I'm writing the story, like you know, we're going there and, and she's just wearing like a you know a normal shirt, and we're we're entering an, you know an official government building in Putrajaya, uh, and and then the guards are like, oh, you know, you can't have your you know shoulders that you know that bare, you know, because this is you know an, an official you know official building in the country. So you know the, this woman comes, this guard comes over, and she just gives my wife her jacket, and you know very, you know very politely, and and we just continue on our way, right? But these sort of little details are, are you know, uh, are things that give you a, a you know different sense of a country. It's like okay, there's a certain amount of propriety that's in in parts of the country, um, whereas the birth of the child is more was much more in a hospital, is much more kind of a Chinese uh, Malaysian experience because of our and, and in Indian because of our doctors, because of the staff, <coughs> excuse me, the staff. Um, so you're, you know, a story like this, you'd see, um, you know, basically the different layers of, you know, different cultures in, in one society, the different types of people, and how they're sort of interacting. Um, and that's something you couldn't really get in a guidebook. You couldn't, um, you know, you, you couldn't really find. I mean, people could say to you, oh yeah, you know, when you go to official building, you know, make sure you're covered. Um, but sort of reading that in a story, you know, especially with somebody going off, you know, to something as important as a marriage, I think it just would resonate with you more. Because you know you you feel that you know, um, or you know recently like we were um, just in Laos and it was interesting we we're in the the um, royal palace and uh, you know again you know like like you have to cover yourself up and so okay we cover ourselves up we cover our child up um, which was you know, interesting most places you know they don't um, you know especially for young children you know he was about a year and a half at the time. You know, like in Malaysia, nobody would would care if a child, you know, uh, is wearing shorts, for example, in 
you know, in, in an official uh, building. But in Laos, they were, you know, they're quite concerned. Oh, no, you know, your child has to be kind of wrapped up. We're like, okay, you know, that's an interesting detail that, um, you know, tells you a lot about, you know, the conservative nature of the society. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, and then as we were, as we were in the royal palace, like our boy was, you know, getting a little bit uh, bored and, and uh, you know, kind of being active. And the guard came over and was literally like, you know, poking his finger at, you know, at my son and, and, and scolding him, you know. And I just, you know, and I was just furious about this, you know, the, this rudeness and this aggression. I mean, my child was, you know, like a year and a half years old. And he's telling, he's telling him, like, you have to be quiet, you know. Yeah, and which like, is not, I mean, it's not typical of my experience of Asia where everybody's usually very friendly towards children and yeah. I love them just being <clears throat> children. Yeah, interesting. Uh, yeah, it was, it was very interesting because so we found that of all the of all the countries in Southeast Asia, Laos was a little bit, you know, much more probably the most conservative and especially in these kind of official buildings. Um, there was I mean, you know, it was you know, it was, it was a communist country until until very recently. Um, and and there's just this sort of like institutional harshness that seems to be there. Um, still, you know, whereas in the broader society, there's um, it's it's you know, warmer and, and more uh, accommodating for children. Um, but these, <clears throat> again, these are sort of details that you wouldn't really get in a guidebook. Um, for, you know, most guidebook writers would not be bringing a child along for one thing. Yeah. <laughs> so they're, you know, they're not going to find out like, oh, you know, like the people in the restaurant are going to be great, but the people in the in the uh, museums are going to be, you know, very very harsh and you know and, and controlling. Um, so I think, yeah, I mean, so. To me, like stories, uh, just tell you like more. You know, I mean, uh, stories do. They tell you more about the culture, but but certain details can just kind of, you know, trigger a certain awareness um, in you about about history because it you know kind of resonates. With that, okay, this is, you know, this is a very different sort of background in this country to other countries. You know, and so people, you know, especially like a guard or somebody like you know in, in this sort of palace would have a very different, um, you know, experience than somebody in, in you know Indonesia or Malaysia. Um, you know, they're, they're policing, which is, you know, I mean, a, a very sort of different background. So, um, yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure if that, if that answered your question. Yeah, yeah, it did, it did. Um, and there are words and then there are images. And of course, this, uh, our podcast is about travel photography, but as I said before, you, you told me during our conversation that, uh, for you, photography is not a passion, it's more of a skill, but do you think it's, um, this is a necessary necessary skill for for writers. Are publishers looking for writers who can take photos as well, or conversely, are they looking for photographers who can tell a story, maybe to yeah mm. uh, contain costs and have one person who can do both things? Right. Basically, it would it would really depend on on every publication is different. Some you know will want the writer to do everything some you know to be right you know to write around a photographer um some will simply just want you to write or to be a photographer so you know this what we're, we're kind of in a weird transition period now um you know where i guess a lot of like younger you know writers and journalists are you know doing basically like developing every skill um, it was funny because after you asked me this question, where we, we talked about this question, uh, a couple of days later, I, I saw an article um, by I think it was like somebody in, in the um, not the PR uh, somebody I think it was NBC News in the U.S. and he was talking about they recently, you know, were looking to hire like three or four new journalists, and every single you know every person who applied was young in their twenties or early thirties, and all of them you know could 
I mean, well, could write, of course, but all of them could, you know, or claim that they could, you know, photograph, they knew how to do video, both shooting and editing. Um, you know, some also could claim that they could do audio uh, and also handle social media. So there's, I guess, you know, and it was kind of, it was kind of meditation on, on our, you know, can anybody actually really do these things uh, and do them well? Um, I think writing and, and you know and photography. I think there's lots of people who do that. I know you know like uh, a friend of mine, Stuart Butler, writes for uh, Lonely Planet and and uh, he's just a brilliant photographer and he does a lot of stuff on on East Africa um, where he'll write you know uh, the text and also do the photographs. Um, but I know other authors who are you know basically you know only write, only do text, and you know and, and they've they've been very worried that um, in the coming years you know that this won't be enough. Um, my sort of take is that, you know, I've been, you know, learning, you know, learning to do, you know, learning to do especially like audio for the last couple of years, like doing podcasting. Um, and also like photography is something that I, you know, that I learned, you know, many years ago. Um, I haven't really found that it's, you know, that has made me say more valuable than other people. Um, I think publishing still, it really depends on your relationships with, with editors, um, and your, You're much more, uh, you know, it's much better to actually like, you know, um, uh, nurture, the, you know, relationships with with um, with editors, with publishers, um, and find out the skills that you know they need because you know they'll they'll if 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 your if your photography, if it's for like a newspaper article, um, you know. I think my you know my skills as a photographer are fine. Like for you know if they're if they're small pictures you know within a magazine. But if you're talking about like you know the a two page two page spread, uh, I'm not really sure any you know anybody's going to buy my stuff, you know. Um, and I don't I don't know there there are that many people who can do both you know well enough. Um, so unless you think that these people are going to you know sweep up all the work, which seems unlikely, I think we're we're at a, we're in a phase where. Publishers, you know, and editors don't really know what they want. Um, you know, journalism schools are just teaching people, you know, learn these skills because maybe they're, you know, they're valuable to you. Uh, but we don't really know. We don't really know what's going to happen, like, in the coming years. Um, if there's going to be this, this sense, okay, you know, having somebody write, you know, take, take photographs, shoot video, edit the video is probably a waste of time, you know, because they're either they're not going to do it, you know, well enough. Uh, compared to somebody who just focuses on the one task, you know, um, or they're, or, you know, they're going to do it competently, but, you know, uh, yeah. some, you know, something's going to suffer, right? It's going to be, it's, it's still going to be less uh, appealing than, than if you kind of break it, you know, that division of labor, right? Um, so that's why, to me, to me, it's difficult to answer the question because, you know, these publishing is changing, right? I mean, like yeah. the whole nature and, you know, what skills, um, you know, are, what are, what are the skills that are going to be valuable? Um, it's really hard to say. I mean, I was really surprised when I started, you know, learning to podcast and, you know, put a lot of time into it, um, you know, a couple of years ago. And then when I, you know, started approaching all these different travel publishers and, and they just weren't interested, you know. Um, I think only, I think Four Doors has a podcast and it's just like an interview style podcast. And I think Rough Guide just started one, which again is just, just an interview. But none of the major uh, publishers, you know, are doing like say documentary style, you know, podcasts. Um, you know, they're just it's just something that, you know, they're doing video work, uh, but they're not really interested in in um, in like I said in, in podcasting. So you know, again, like you know, if you're thinking, okay, what skills do I need? It's like, well, you know, <laughs> I, I suppose you know, choose the ones that you like and that you think you're good at, because uh, who knows, you know, in five years, what what what's what sure. you know, what's going to be asked, yeah. So uh, 
that's the, that's the, there are images, there are words, and then there are spoken words, which you hinted at with, um, you mentioned that you, <coughs> you're doing a podcast, which is called Travel Type. Uh, please tell us a bit about it. Uh, uh, what's the podcast about? Uh, um, and especially why do you do it? Is it something that you do it for yourself? Do you think it has, can have some uh, commercial value? It uh, will put your name out, make yourself more recognizable? Um, I'd, well, I'd say all of the, all of those, all of the above. Um, the, the podcast is called Travel Tape. Uh, tape, as in you know, audio tape, or also like a bit of a bit of a pun on you know the, the sort of the duct tape that everybody you know uses you know when they travel to patch up things. Um, and it's mostly it, it's uh, right now it's it's two different types. Uh, I do like these long immersive documentaries. Like, usually, it's somebody else's story. Uh, for example, like uh, Stuart Butler when he when he did this six week walk through Maasai country in uh, in southern Kenya, um, <clears throat> and he just recorded you know dozens and dozens of hours of audio, um, and you know and I'm sort of piece you know putting together you know a documentary about this about uh, you know with with the actual live sounds that he's um, there and, and then his later narrations and then my narrations and my sort of editing, um, so we you know I do those. I, um, <clears throat> I've done topics on Tibet, uh, you know, where I've in- interviewed uh, academics, um, you know, who one is like uh, about Eastern Tibet, and he's somebody who researched the area for years and years, uh, but this very sort of uh, obscure little uh, myth, you know, in, in the region, but that's kind of a key to really understanding the place. So what I try to do is I try to find these stories um, that, you know, are very immersive and are very detailed. And... I, I say it's like if you've gone to a place a dozen times and you're still curious to know more about it, you, you know, you don't want just the, the general history. You actually want to know how everything kind of connects and you want to know, you know, the obscure characters and how, you know, and the, you know, the, the, the myths, you know, that sort of tie this place together. That's the sort of thing I'm trying to, I'm looking for and doing. So, you know, you've, you've gone, you've gone somewhere, you know, yeah, you know, you, you like the place and now you want to really know something about it. Um, and that's, basically what I, the idea of the, of the, of the doc, of the, uh, of the podcast was. And so the second thing was part of the reason is these things take a long time to do, uh, those, those sort of documentaries. And, you know, I wanted to, in terms of building up an audience, I mean, you know, as you know, you've got to, you've got to put things out uh, more regularly. So I started doing a, a second type where I follow people on the road. Um, and I do multiple interviews, you know, over like a, you know, four or five, six month period. Um, and, you know, these are you know, live interviews with them. And then I, just, and then I, you know, later on edit them into kind of an, into a uh, more of a narrative so that, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm introducing what there's, you know, I'm introducing them and then, <clears throat> excuse me, and then they talk. Um, and then a few weeks later, I'll, I'll uh, <clears throat> interview them again. And, and so the point of that is that it, <clears throat> even though they're just, you know, they're interviews, you're still, they're forming a narrative because you're seeing the person, and or you're hearing the person over a long period of time, and you're hearing them change. You're hearing the goals they had at the beginning. Uh, either they reach them, or they don't reach them, or they discover new things along the way. So, uh, so essentially, there's two types that that I'm doing. So there's a lot of work involved, as you said. And uh, <laughs> I'm curious, what what if you you find a great story, but the person you are interviewing is terrible at telling it? Yeah, that that does happen, um, and there's I guess there's two ways to deal with that. Um, there's I mean there's the one as an interviewer, you know what you can do, right? Uh, how how you can fix that, and there's lots of like diff- different tips that you can do, and and a big thing is just to ask them to say it again. You know, um, one thing that you know a lot of times when people are interviewing someone, they they 
you know, they, they, you get shy and you don't really, you know, want to interrupt the person. But um, I found that, you know, at the beginning, I just tell people, you know, this is the, this is why I'm interviewing you. I need this information. I need these stories. Um, and I usually say, you know, what works best in kind of a radio environment is going back and forth between uh, sort of like, you know, summaries and anecdotes. So you give an anecdote and then you kind of like say what it means to you. You know, and I tell people, this is sort of what I'm looking for. And and um, and I found that people tend to just, I think even now, I think I'm, I'm tending just to sort of like talk, you know, and not give enough anecdotes, right? Uh, it's a natural thing. And, and I just, you know, I'll just stop the person and just say, okay, can you give me an example? Um, and if they give a short example, for example, I was uh, just did this podcast on this guy who did the Annapurna circuit in Everest Base Camp, and the first time I interviewed him about this, you know, I was really ex- you know excited to interview him because he's a you know he's a lifelong hiker, he's passionate about the mountains, and I'm like, man, this is gonna be a great story of him finally reaching Everest Base Camp, not not the summit, of course, but just the base camp um, after like a week, you know, after what a month in the, on the Annapurna circuit and then a week on the Everest uh, Base Camp trek, and he just kind of goes, yeah, yeah, it's just. You know, walking in the snow, and then um, you know, along the way, I met this monk, and uh, we kind of walked up together, and and then we reached base camp. <laughs> and I'm like, man, you know, <laughs> okay, that's really, that's really like, all right. And I just kind of put it aside, and and um, you know, I, I you know, I knew I was going to interview him again another day about you know the same thing because most of this topic uh, of that interview was something else. So I just kind of thought about, okay, how can I, how can I, uh, you know, get something out of this guy, right? <laughs> So I just told him, I said, okay, look, you know, um, I, I, re- I want you to talk for 10 minutes about just the last day walking up to base camp, right? And when you tell somebody, when you give, when you give them like a, you know, a limit like that, time limit, th- their mind immediately starts thinking, oh, okay, details, all right, I need details. Um, and they, and, you know, and you see their brain, you know, you can hear their brain almost slowing down and, and thinking like, okay, I need to give an introduction and I need to build this up. And, and, and so the, just giving it that time limit is often something that can make, make a person think. Um, and then the second thing I said is, so what, what I want you to do is, is to think of like this one image, um, you know, that's really visual. And I, and I said, here's an example. I said, when I was interviewing this other guy, you know, he was, I was asking him about, you know, this, this obscure trail they're on. And I said, do the locals want, you know, tourism in this area? You know, and most people would just say, oh, yeah, yeah, they're so excited. They're so excited about tourism. They're so happy. And that's boring, right? You know, it's boring to hear. It's boring to say. But the guy said, oh, yeah. He goes, and when we're filming these people, he goes, over and over again, we'll be asking them this question, and they will stop, and they will look directly into the lens of the camera and say, please, come to our area. We want to have, you know, travelers here. And when he said that, I'm like, wow. I mean, that image of somebody looking into a camera is something everybody, you know, Everybody can feel that immediately, right? And so I said, that's the kind of image I want, you know, from you. I want you to tell me, like, some details that, you know, and he's like, okay. So he, he starts to retell the story, you know, and, you know, crunching through, you know, he's talking about going through the snow and he's describing, like, you know, the, you know, the type of rock, you know, because he's a rock climber, so he knows the type of rock that's in the area and he knows, you know, the geological formations, right? And then he said, and then I hear this, like, you know, kind of voice up in these sort of talus fields kind of going like, woo woo you know, and... I'm like, what? You know, and he looks up, you know, and there's this guy waving at him, like, you know, about 30 meters off the trail, right? And, and again, like, this is a great image, you know, somebody shouting to you, you know, from above your position, you know, and, and trying to get your attention. And then, you know, and then he talks about how they gesture back and forth about who's on the right trail. Uh, and it turns out, you know, he's on the right trail and he, you know, essentially waves this guy down and, and then they, you know, they go on. So 
you know, from basically one line, you know, it turns out this guy's a monk, right? Um, who's going to base camp, not for any spiritual uh, enlightenment, but just because he's always wanted to go to base camp, <laughs> you know? Um, so, so you go from this story, which is one line, like, yeah, I was walking up to base camp and I met a monk, um, you know, to these visual details, right? And, and so, you know, you can usually co- coach people, um, you know, to, to kind of remember things, right? Because because uh, usually, like, the, the things that they tell you, you know, like, like meeting this monk, it was significant, right? Obviously, it was. He had, he had a lot of details in his mind, uh, and that's why it jumped out when I first asked him. But people are usually bad about, about being able to explain the details, yeah. you know. Um, so, so that's basically that's what you, as an interviewer, you can do that. And then yeah, as I a maybe you know, start using yeah. that during my. <laughs> you should have you should have interrupted me a hundred times. <laughs> no, it's okay. It's okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but the, anyways, this, so the second thing is, as a writer, you know, um, you know, there's things you can do basically, like to, you know, uh, to go around that if you have, if you're sort of limited. Okay, you can you can add more more details about the history of a place and. Um, you know, and then I mean, an example is like in the the princess story that I did, um, which is about you know Eastern Tibet, and it's about this story of of a um, the Baka Temple where it's the, the temple is quite you know it's quite mysterious because um, it's it's on the burial site of this Chinese princess's uh, essentially stillborn child, so you have this <clears throat> excuse me this monastery in Tibet where they worship a Chinese princess, and it's built upon the, you know, the grave of her illegitimate stillborn child, which is, you know, I mean, in itself, it's just like, okay, that's a pretty fascinating kind of uh, beginning of a story. Um, and what's even more, you know, interesting is that all the monk, all the head lamas from that monastery trace their, you know, reincarnation lineage back to this child. So it's the only place in Tibet, uh, you know, that that um, where the, you know where the current lamas trace their lineage back to. You know, like I said, a dead child, right? So there's all this sort of, you know, intrigue. And I thought, okay, I'm, you know, and I found the the, the back of Tulku. Like the Tulku is like the, the monk who's, you know, been re, you know, who's the reincarnation of this child. He's alive. He's in uh, New, Mex- yeah, New Mexico. And he has, he has his own um, organization there. And I'm like, wow, this is, you know, fantastic. I mean, I'm going to contact this person, right? <laughs> you know? And so I contact the, you know, the association and, they're like, okay, you know, the monks, you know, the the, the lamb, you know, the tulku, uh, he's you know, he's busy, and I thought that's fine. I mean, it, you know, he probably doesn't want to talk about this anyways. To him, this is just a normal part of his existence. Um, but they said, you know, I can talk to one of his disciples, right? Um, so this, you know, I'm, I'm really excited, and, and this guy, you know, at the phone call happens, and this guy gets on the line, and it's just a disaster. Like he just doesn't want to say anything, mm-hmm. right? You know, um, he's just basically answering yes and no. <laughs> you know? And I'm really like, oh, oh wow. Um, okay, so he confirms that this story is true. Like, you know, the current, you know, Bakatulku uh, is, you know, uh, the reincarnation of this, you know, uh, princess's child and all this sort of stuff. So, I mean, I get some factual information from this from this man. Uh, but it's a really awful, you know, awful interview. And and, um, and, then, and, this, and especially at the end, he's like, uh, I said, you know, can I actually use this on, you know, my podcast he's like no <laughs> yeah, yeah I, mean, I can use the information but i can't use his voice oh, wow. uh and, and, and i'm like oh man because i have you know i had talked to the manager before this about exactly what i was doing um so i had to you know i had to work around this right and, and it you know and, and as a, you know when you tell a story i mean like you you put this in there and and um for the 
I'm actually doing a written version of this story as well, which we'll talk a lot more about this kind of thing because, you know, in the podcast, I just kind of mentioned that, you know, I, I contacted them, they confirmed it, um, and they, you know, they allowed me to use, um, you know, these recordings that the, you know, the, the Tulkul had made, um, you know, uh, about meditation songs, right? So, um, you know, so I played those in the podcast. But when, you know, the story that I'm writing, like, you know, the, the written, the text story, um, well, you know, we'll cover a lot more of this, right? Because this is, you know, in, interesting as a writer, like how you get around these kind of details, right? Um, you know, and you just simply, either you just bypass it completely, um, you know, or you simply, you work that into the story, you know? Um, and a lot of times these things actually work out quite well, you know, because it's, it's you know, it's a struggle sometimes to get people to, you know, to, to tell, you know, like a, a good story, um, you know, to tell the details that you're looking for. And, and sometimes, you know, like I said, like this, this search for the right person and then, and then the failure. Okay, that, that becomes the story. It's a great podcast. You also have been on subscribe and uh, would recommend everybody to, to check it out because... Well, thank, uh, thank you, you very much. Uh, I, I love the, the way you use the, the ambient sounds and the background music to, to make, uh, I mean, transport the listener to those places at least uh, to, to me it just sounds great i wish i would be able to do something similar <laughs> <anymore>. <laughs> uh, but yeah uh, I, I want to be respectful of your time and especially of your uh, voice because i know you use it and you told me you were just uh, came out from uh, uh, some kind of uh, throat infection or something <laughs> so your, mm, your voice yeah. is uh, starting to recover i don't want to uh, to strain it too but much Okay. It's, it's up to you. I mean, if you want to, if you have a few more questions. No, I just I'm, wanted to yeah. to ask one about your uh, your experience as uh, as an expat. You've been living in Taiwan for eighteen years, I think, and then in Malaysia for five. So, how has uh, living abroad in in places uh, whose culture is vastly different from uh, from yours, from the place where you grew up, changed you or made you the writer that you are now? Okay. Um, well, I mean, I think. In that, you know, living abroad for 20 years, I think inevitably would change you. Uh, there's, you know, there's, there's the superficial changes, like you, you know, the type of music or movies or food, you know, even maybe sports or activities that you do. Those things are changing because of the different environment that you're in and the different people that you associate with. Um, and there's even things, I mean, that change, like the way you perceive colors. Um, you know, the way I perceive red now after living, you know, in in, uh, in Taiwan for so many years. I mean, it's it, it has a different symbolic sort of meaning, right? And and after a while, you just sort of, uh, you know, you 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 uh, adopt that kind of meaning. You know, the way families interact, um, you know, is is perfectly normal. The way education uh, happens, you know, these things become kind of your your reference after after a long time. Um, and because what happens in Canada now. I don't really know. I mean, um, my whole experience, you know, like I said with a lot of the, with a lot of things like family and education, uh, you know, is based around you know what happens in, in you know in Asia. Um, so you can, you know you lose a bit of contact with your old you know with your you know, original culture, um, and then like I said, different things become your sort of framework. I mean, there are times. Like now, my wife is Italian now, so of course, you know, it, it, and my, you know, so we have a little, little blonde-haired boy, you know, in the house. So, I mean, in terms of, the, you know, the people around me, sort of daily are different when I was living in Taiwan, where you know I was married to a Taiwanese woman, and like all my, all my extended family and friends were Taiwanese, and there were literally, you know, times when I would look in the mirror and, you know, like wow, like my face, what a weird-looking face, you know, because you know the way the way the brain works in terms of pattern patterning. 
uh, facial recognition is that you know whatever is around you, whatever the you know the standard is, that's you know becomes uh, these you know these sort of blocks in your in your in your head, right? So everybody I'm seeing around me, you know, has sort of Asian features. And then when I look at myself, it's like, oh wow, like, I don't have those features. And it, you know, and every time it was kind of like a you know a little bit of a shock, um, you know. To so when that sort of happens, like you you're not really the same person anymore, you know, because you realize this how much, you know, the things that you you know when you grew up, how the things that you took for granted were just because they're always there around you. You know, they're not they're not more normal than anything else, um, you know, and nothing. I guess, you know, I think I used the word exotic once in, in earlier on, um, but it's sort of like a, a memory. Like things are no longer exotic to me because they're just, they're, you know, they're, they're interesting, they're, you know, they're intriguing, they're, you know, they're exciting, but they're not exotic because they're just part of, you know, my daily life. They're part of things that I've seen for so long. Do you think um, that, sorry to interrupt, but yep. as a writer, that your reader, especially those from the Western countries, would expect to find something exotic in your writing, and so you're losing a bit of that. Well, you know, it's, what's interesting is, is uh, I was writing, um, I guess, by me, I'm not sure many years ago, eight or nine years ago. I was doing a bunch of articles uh, for the Wall Street Journal, and my editor was was actually Taiwanese, but she was born in in, in America, and so she, she was very interested in Taiwanese stories because of that. But she didn't know anything about it, and I remember writing this this article for her about uh, this big boat burning uh, festival. Uh, that takes place every three years, and she was just like, "She was, what is this? Is this some kind of like crazy cult?" <laughs> you know? And I was like, "I'm like, what?" And we had this long conversation. I realized like some of these uh, these you know um, examples of uh, religious you know expression, like especially the you know folk religion, had to become so common you know it's commonplace to me and so and so normal that I, I'd lost the ability to see what. You know, somebody not from that background would, you know, uh, would not understand, right? So the, it was a really good kind of wake-up call that okay, I have to make sure that I always put myself, you know, in in um, depending on my on my audience, of course. But if my audience is a Western audience, I need to kind of put myself back into that um, that frame and, and think what, how do I, you know, frame the story? How do I write it so that these details, um, you know, are are understandable, you know, to somebody else. Um, because yeah, after a while, you just kind of like you just take these things for granted, um, you know, like everybody else does there, right? So, um, in terms of what people would expect, I think I tried to like make myself kind of a bridge to these things because um, there's a lot of talk about you know cultural appropriation and you know letting local voices you know talk about their own stories, and obviously there's you know there's I, I want to hear local people talk about their stories, but what what a lot of people don't realize is that. You know, local you know local people in many places can't explain their own stories very well to a, to a foreign audience. You know, whether this is you know Western people explaining things you know to Asians or Asians back, you know, or Africans to Europeans, because you know we don't know what the other person doesn't know, and that's a huge thing in in, in travel writing and, and you know writing in general, um, is that you know you you need to, oftentimes you need these bridges, um, you know to essentially help to interpret uh you know the you know the, the foreign culture because you have to you know you you need you know, you know you know these people here don't know anything about this they don't know the you know the basic you know background um you know on the, on the food on the architecture on the culture on the religion you know on the, on the, on the social structures um so somebody you know who's who's too local is simply going to just you know, gloss over all these things um you know, I had, one of the first interviews I did was with my brother-in-law uh, in Taiwan, and I was trying to get him to explain to me, uh, you know, just his daily life, right? And he kept just he kept just saying to me, 
well, you know, I just do the same things as everybody else. And I'm like, yeah. that, that, that doesn't help. What do you eat for breakfast? And he's like, well, you know, this is a normal thing. You know? and, that's, and that's, you know, one of the problems that we have with, um, you know, w- you know with, with understanding each other is that, you know, um, the people who oftentimes, you know, are bridges are either uh, people, you know, from the local culture who've, you know, say, been educated or, you know, in, in another, you know, for example, somebody maybe from Asia who's been educated in the West and then, you know, they're reinterpreting um, these stories, you know, or there's somebody like me who's, you know, spent a lot of time, um, you know, in a country, you know, and, and can basically, um, you know, interpret it back, you know, to, you know, to, to a Western audience. Um, but, it, but it's not easy. There's a lot of stuff you, you miss, right? And there's a lot of things that you, after a while, you get, you get like I said, so familiar with it, um, you know, that you can't, uh, you can't, you know, some, your editor, that, that's, I guess, that would be also like the very first thing we talked about was like, you know, the, the problems of social media uh, and blogging is that this would be a great example where, you know, the old sort of, you know, institutions of like magazines and newspapers and books, um, why, they, why they can still be much more valuable because you'd have an editor who would say, uh, I, I don't understand this, you know. I don't know what you're talking about here. This doesn't make any sense to me. Um, and then you, you know, and you could basically reinterpret it for that person, right? Um, but if you, you know, but a blog, you, you know, you're basically there by yourself, and and um, you know, you mm-hmm. just kind of you know write whatever you, you know, write however you feel you know best explains the topic. But there's a lot of things that you probably are missing. Yeah, sure. So uh, that was great, uh, great conversation we had. <laughs> thank you for your time. Uh, well, thank you so much. We didn't talk much about photography, but that's perfectly fine. I mean, it's it's great to have uh, something different for a change, and I'm sure our audience will uh, will appreciate your your stories and your your insights. So, unless you have something something more you would like to add, uh, just uh, wrap up this conversation. Maybe we'll have another one in the future because I'm sure you have many more stories to tell. <laughs> Well, yeah, if we talk, if we do talk again, I'll I'll prepare m- m- many more anecdotes than this that's, time. Um, I hope I hope this has been you know useful to you. Yeah, um, it's been. Uh, but it's been uh, great. yeah, all right, excellent. Yeah, no, I'll be actually. It's interesting to me because I'll be probably next summer. I'll be moving to France with my wife, uh, and that's going to be like a very interesting adventure for me because you know I've lived abroad so long that all my references like I said are, are you know from living in Asian countries so you know I've got a two-year-old child and and you know his education you know is, is being you know in the local schools here um, and then we're gonna you know we'll be moving to France and he'll be going to the local schools and then you know we'll be adapting uh, you know we're, we're, not, we're not going as expats I mean my wife's company is there so we'll just be going as ordinary you know ordinary Europeans like moving back um, but you know, to me, when I, I read a lot of like blogs, you know, I've been reading a lot of blogs about uh, families moving to France, and they're usually from an American, you know, perspective, and I just don't relate to them, you know, because I don't, you know, all these this sort of American or Canadian or you know uh, UK lifestyle, it's nothing that you know, especially family life, it's not how I live, it's not how I, you know, see the you know see the world. So to me, it's going to be really interesting. I mean, it's like I'm moving to you know a Western country. Uh, but all my sort of perspective is kind of, you know, uh, especially some family structure and education. All these things are all Asian. <laughs> so um, I'm going to be, yeah, I might actually be podcasting about this because I think uh, it, it might be quite, quite interesting. Um, Would be an interesting experience for sure. <laughs> yeah. So uh, thanks again for, for being with us today. And before we, all right. we close, just uh, if you want to let us, uh, let us know, let our audience know where they can find more about you online, your your website, your podcast. We'll put links in the show notes, but just for people who are 
only listening to the audio version, where can they find more about you? Okay. Um, I guess the first place to start would be my website, uh, robertscottkelly.com. Uh, and then my podcast that there's links on that to my podcast and to other things that mm-hmm. I've done. Uh, and then my podcast webpage, which is travel tape, the podcast.com. Great. Those are the two things. So, yeah, great. So I recommend that people check out your website and your podcast. As I said, uh, really interesting. So right, well, thank you very much. All the best and take care. All right. Thank you. So there you have it, another great conversation with a fantastic guest, an intrepid traveler, Robert Scott Kelly. You can find more about Robert, links to his website and podcast, and all the show notes for this episode at ttim.photo forward slash 84. And as for me, Ugo Che, you can find everything about me at my website, ucphoto.me. Our co-host, Ralph Velasco, will be with us again next week. And uh, you can find everything about Ralph at photoenrichment.com. Until next time, take care and now let's go out and shoot.